1 verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And then in chapter 2, dropping down to chapter 2, verse 10, so we read of the necessity of the incarnation, the Son of God becoming man, Hebrews 2, verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood... He himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren." that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And finally to chapter 7 we go. Hebrews 7 at verse 23. Hebrews 7 verse 23. It's been talking about Old Testament priest, the high priest, and the writer says in verse 23, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. God's holy word. If you take out the church's confession and that forms and prayers book in front of you and turn in that book to page 205, then you'll find yourself at the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism. This catechism is a summary of the teaching of God's word. And we considered first our sin and misery in the first section,
And now we're going to be considering how God brings deliverance through Jesus Christ. And I'd like to read Lord's Days 5 and 6. So beginning with question 12 there, it says according, it's page 205, by the way, 205. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? And the answer is God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. And follow the logic here. It says, can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Then question 14, can another, another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? The answer is no. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. Question 15, well, then what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is also true God. And now it unpacks that in Lord's Day 6, question 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And finally, question 18, then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness? And finally then, question 19, how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. So the church confesses God's truth. Let's ask for God's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches of your revelation. And we are grateful, Lord, to... Now, at last, see the fulfillment to which all the Old Testament pointed. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice to know these things and long to know them more deeply, and that you'd be pleased in the teaching and the preaching of your word on this Lord's Day to visit our hearts, to strengthen us in faith, or if faith is lacking, to impart that gift from above. And we pray that you would give to your people the grace to glorify, to know, and to love the only Redeemer, to trust him alone. In his name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ, the question is, is Jesus the only way to be saved? The only way to be saved. Are we sure of that? If we're challenged this week by a co-worker or somebody in the neighborhood, is Jesus the only way? If somebody said, you know, that's, that's rather small to think like that. There's many paths to God. Can we say it boldly? Christ is the the only way. We know that in our pluralistic society where it's believed many religions 
are good religions. Maybe all religions are good religions. There's many paths to God, people say. Or they say God is too great to be confined to, to one religion like Christianity. Or they, they think that because all religions are equally tolerated under the law, all religions must therefore also be valid before God. It's, uh, it's, it's sad to see, even in many surveys of people who identify as Christians, that they aren't sure whether Christ is the only way, or they say he's not the only way. It's baffling. The Bible is resoundingly clear on this, as you know. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow. And then the apostles in the book of Acts went forward to preach, and they declared there's, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. And Paul told Timothy that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, or rather 2 Thessalonians, that when Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Those who do not know God are the same ones as those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to know God is in Christ. So since we care about our neighbor, then we want not for boasting rights, but out of love for the Redeemer and his glory, out of love for the sinner, we want to tell people there is but one way to God, and this is the way, the Lord Jesus Christ, the fully sufficient way. He is the, the way of redemption that God foreordained from before the creation of the world. As God planned that as a world rebelled against him, he would visit them in grace and he'd provide the way, the only way. The amazing thing is not that there aren't many ways to God. The amazing thing is that there's any way at all to God because the only way was that God should give his son. And so we as Christians should be experts in these things. We should be experts in these things. We should know beyond a shadow of doubt and be prepared at the drop of a hat to testify why Christ is the only way to God. And so we're thankful for catechism lessons and for rehearsing these wonders. Let's ask the question, why is Jesus the only way to God? And let's notice four reasons that all work together here. Number one, Jesus is the only way to God because the issue is God's justice. We want sinners to be saved, we want people to come to know Jesus Christ, and yet we have to recognize that sinners have no inherent understanding of what the issue is. R.C. Sproul, in one of his books, tells the story of, of, of telling his college professor why it is, or that, that announcing that Jesus is the only way, and the college professor, she replied to Sproul, he says, with the words, but how could God be so narrow-minded? I thought God was a God of love. Well, that's a breathtakingly blind response, isn't it? When God, in incomprehensible love, sends his own son to die for sinners, that someone should say, that's narrow-minded, I thought God was a God of love. That's a baffling response, isn't it? 
Unless we recognize that that in the sinful, fleshly nature, people do not know who God is or what salvation is. When somebody says there's many ways to God, we should ask them, well, who is God? When they say there's many ways of being saved, we should ask, what does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? We've been studying the previous catechism lessons, haven't we, that that God is the eternal God, the creator of heavens and earth, and he made us in his image for himself to glorify him. And that we in the garden rebelled and became guilty, and that there is no escape to be found in us. We can't set ourselves free. We were made in God's image, and God in covenant love embraced us at the beginning of time. He bestowed his fellowship upon us, and he put us under covenant obligation to love him in return. And the issue is that we didn't love him in return. We denied his claim. We, we failed to fulfill our covenant obligation of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, we're indebted to God. We haven't given him what he deserves. And we've also now disinherited the covenant blessing and come under the covenant curse of eternal death. That's the issue. God's holy righteousness and we sinners who have become his enemies under his wrath. Now, Satan's favorite tactic in our world is to, is to redefine the issue, right? And so many people think that, that deliverance is when all diseases are eradicated by science, or salvation is when there's no more racism on the earth, or, and it goes on and on like this, right? That, that Satan sets the eyes of sinners upon the consequences of sin, but he hides from his sinners the main reality, the question, how can I, a sinner, stand before a righteous God? How can I escape his wrath and be restored to his favor? How can I escape his curse and know again his covenant blessing? That's the question. And the issue is our sin. Before God's justice, we can't come into God's presence. We are under his wrath in ourselves. And you see, wherever the issue is defined differently, then you're going to have a different answer. If God's just some blob of higher power, then, then I suppose there's many different ways to experience that power. If salvation is just that I begin to think more highly of myself, well, then there's lots of different philosophies that can help you think better about yourself. But if the issue is the holiness of God and our failing before him, then there are not many different ways. It is appointed for man to die once, but after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body. Is this for real? Well, the Bible speaks repeatedly. Jesus spoke often of eternal judgment. We know people are going to spend an eternity in hell. That's how real it is. And when we look at the cross and we see the Son of God suffering, God forsakenness, we know it's real. Would God send his Son to bear hell on the cross if, if there was another way? The justice of God is real. The justice of God is real, and so rightly we confess God's justice and its righteous requirement. God requires that his justice be satisfied. God requires that sin be paid for. God requires that what is owed him is given to him. 
because he is a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. And no one escapes death unless the claims of God's covenant are satisfied. So then the catechism says, well, can we pay that debt ourselves or can somebody else, someone else pay that for us? And that brings us to the second point this morning. Christ is the only way, number two, because no mere creature can pay our debt. No mere creature can pay our way. Can I pay this debt myself? No, no. Number one, even if I began to obey the Lord perfectly from this day forward, it doesn't make up for all my past failures to give God what he was due. If your renter tells you next month he's going to begin paying you in full, the first of the month, every month, you still want to know about the back eight months of back rent. But number two, it's even worse than that. It's that our very best deserves God's judgment. Were we to come before God to present ourselves to pay our way, we would discover our best works are unacceptable to God, right? Were this very worship service to be presented before the just judge, apart from Christ, but only in our merits, we would go to hell for our worship service this morning. Because our prayers have not been pure, because our hearts have not been sung with our hearts fully devoted to God. Because we've thought about ourselves and not the Lord, because we've been apathetic towards the Lord himself. Our best works are tainted by sin. And so that's devastating news for humanity. We can't save ourselves. And it seems that every other religion but Christianity says you can save yourself. And by human effort, by human merit, by by human meditation, you can make the way. And the Bible's clear. Well, what about another creature? Can someone else pay my way? We live in a world of substitutes. Grateful for dentists who can't or who do the the work we can't do on our teeth, and for people who cut hair because we can't cut our own hair. We're we're grateful for people who step in and do what we can't do for us. Well, could we find a creature? Hebrews says a lot about angels. Could we have an angel pay our way? Angels are powerful and pure and pleasing to God. They stand in God's presence. They haven't fallen into sin, not the holy elect angels. Hebrews 1.14 says they're ministering spirits sent to minister for our salvation. Could they pay our way? Or, or if, if not an angel, how about an animal? Hebrews speaks about animal blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And we know the Old Testament is dripping in blood. Animal sacrifices everywhere. Can these innocent victims pay our way? And the answer to these questions is no for at least two reasons. Number one, we confess that God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Humans alone are made in the image of God. And it was with humans alone, with Father Adam, that God entered into covenant. The debt we owe to God is not merely a financial debt, right? If we had a financial debt, anybody could pay for us. Dog, horse, cow, whatever. But it's a moral debt. And who can bear the moral responsibility? Boys and girls, if, if your teacher is missing at school in this coming year because he or she is sick and you, you need a substitute teacher, 
Will they bring in as a substitute a horse or a cow? You say, no. Well, well, what if would they bring in a five-year-old boy or girl? Well, no, that, that five-year-old can't take responsibility for you. Some of the kids wandered out of class and got lost somewhere. A five-year-old can't bear the moral responsibility of a classroom of students. When your parents get a babysitter, they don't, they don't get an animal, not just because an animal can't speak, but because an animal can't bear that load. Again, they don't get a five-year-old child to be your babysitter because that little one can't bear the responsibility. But who can? The justice of God requires the same human nature which sin must make satisfaction. Man has sinned and man must pay. Hebrews 10.4 says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But the other reason that no mere creature can pay away is because no mere creature could sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath. Would any creature? I mean, if God had just created one righteous human being to come and die on the cross for us, what would happen? If the person who died on the cross was just a righteous man, that's all he was, what would happen? He'd still be in hell. He'd still be bearing the burden. He'd be crushed and consumed by the weight. He would never be able to bear it away. Imagine somebody sat beside the ocean to, to empty out the ocean spoonful by spoonful. He would never be done. If, if the ocean is the, the ocean of God's wrath, he would never come to the end of it. Or, or if the, the whole United States national debt, $32 trillion, was put on your back, when would you ever finish paying it? God's justice must be satisfied. You can't pay it. I can't pay it. No mere creature can pay it for us. And so the Lord is shutting off all roads and saying, you may, you may try lots of different avenues, but they're all just so many mazes. You're just going in circles. There's no one. No mere creature can pay the way. And so that brings us to the third reason why Jesus Christ is the only way, because Jesus Christ alone can restore us to God And that's because he meets the three essential criteria. He is number one, man. He's number two, righteous. And he's number three, God. He's man. Hebrews 2 announces that. It's an amazing thing that he he shares humanity with us. He was made like his brothers. The Son of God coming down from heaven. the, The eternal creator now becoming a creature. But not just a creature, he's, he's born, Galatians says, beneath the law. In other words, he's born in this world beneath the covenant obligation. He comes where we are, in solidarity with us, to be one with us. That he might make propitiation for our sins, might remove that wrath of God. The glorious love of Christ to do this. That he comes truly to be one with us. The genealogies of Matthew and Luke show he can trace his, his ancestry all the way back to David, back to Abraham, back to Adam. The Son of God comes to be one with humanity. All of us were under the first Adam, that covenant head. But God sends a second Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our place comes in our humanity as one who knows what it is to be human, 
to eat and to sleep and to grow weary. But more than that, he comes as one appointed by the Father to be our representative in the covenant. To be our covenant head. And so he's well suited. But he's also well suited not just because he is one with us in humanity, but because he is truly righteous. Truly righteous. If he had any sin at all, then he would have to die for his own sin. But he comes without any any debt at all of his own. He is the spotless lamb. Hebrews 7 says it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He didn't have a need like those Old Testament high priests who had to, had to first offer sacrifice for their own sins before they could minister for the other people. But he came in his own holiness. Think of the Old Testament priesthood. Remember they had boys and girls. The Old Testament priests didn't wear what we preachers often wear today, you know, a nice shirt or a business suit. He had special robes and a special vest and a special hat and a special breastplate. And these clothes the high priest wore even had bells on them. And when you, if you were to see the high priest walking through the camp, it was a sight to behold. But what were these costly, splendid garments? They were symbols of an excellency, of a holiness that the priest himself did not possess. The garments were put on because the priest himself was not worthy to minister in God's presence. And so those beautiful garments testified in a way to the deficiency of the Old Testament high priest who was a mere man and a sinful man. But Jesus Christ comes and he offers the ultimate sacrifice, not decked out in the priestly garments, but actually naked. He hangs on the cross naked. And yet, in perfect holiness, he has no sin. He is all purity. He is the lamb without blemish or defect. And he offers up himself on the cross, and he performs that great work of the high priest. And he offers up not one sacrifice among many sacrifices, not not as the Old Testament high priest did, one sacrifice today and another one tomorrow, or as, as they did on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, one sacrifice this year and then another one next year. But Christ has offered up, Hebrews says, himself once for all. It was a singular accomplishment. It was a complete achievement. He could say on the cross, it is finished. So we come to worship this morning. How? Taking comfort that our outward clothes are clean and we look nice and took care of our hair. Or that we have done so many good things in the church and are greeting each other with smiles. All of that may be good, but is that our confidence as we enter into the priestly work of worship this morning? No, we're to come in the confidence that we're clothed in the Lord Jesus. And his righteousness, that's to be our confidence. He is true man, he is a righteous man, but thirdly, he is true God. And so he can bear in his human nature, and you have to remember this, Christ only suffers in his human nature. 
God cannot suffer. God cannot die. God cannot be cut off from God. He suffers in his human nature. But he does it sustained by his divine nature. Yeah, it's a mystery. It's a wondrous mystery. But the reason that he and his human nature could bear the eternity of hell is because he is supported by his divine nature. You see, it's an amazing thing that though hell is eternal, never comes to an end, yet Christ in less than one day, in several hours upon a cross, could bear the eternity of hell for all his people. How is that possible? It's because he's God. And though the man seated beside the ocean trying to empty it out spoonful by spoonful will never come to the end of it, the Son of God in our human nature can pick up the whole ocean and drink the whole cup of God's wrath down to its last drop. He can take the whole ocean of our guilt and throw it aside and remove it from us as far as the east is from the west. For he is God. And he is God not just to bear the burden of that eternal curse, but he is God to rise again from the dead and to live, to minister to us. And so the writer of Hebrews says the Old Testament priests, they kept, they kept passing out. We get one after another after another. They keep dying on us, but not this high priest. He lives forever. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we have one now seated in heaven. He will never fail us, will never depart us, but who always lives to minister to us his saving work. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the full weight of God's wrath. And having purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. He took his rest. He finished his work. It was all accomplished. Redemption is secure for his people. He sat down. And now from on high to send his spirit and to apply that work to our lives. He is our Savior. And he has triumphed. Have we any doubt that all of our sins have been paid for? That all righteousness has been obtained for us by his obedient life and by his perfect death? Then look to heaven and see him seated. The fathers welcomed him. Well done, son. You have accomplished redemption. He's true man to take our place. He's truly righteous to bear our sin and not his own. He's truly God to lift the whole cup of God's wrath. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. How do we know this? You may get the impression if you just read through the catechism, this is just logical deductions. You know, we just, we just put on our thinking caps and we begin to reason through, what kind of Savior might I need? Okay, this, not that, maybe this. No. How do we come to know this? The catechism is abundantly clear, isn't it? The Holy Gospel tells me. The Holy Gospel tells me. When did the gospel get published? When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were born? No. 
when Adam and Eve sinned, on the very day in which they rebelled against God. The same God who had unilaterally entered into covenant with them at the moment they were created and bound himself to them in love returned to them on the very day they treacherously betrayed him. And he unilaterally initiated the covenant of grace and promised to divide the intended friendship between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. God would place enmity there, hostility. He wouldn't let us be friends with the devil. And then he promised of the woman would come a son who would crush the serpent's head and whose heel the serpent would crush. They would bruise one another. But in that bruising, as it took place at the cross, the son of the woman, the son of God, would be triumphant. Genesis 3.15 is, we call the mother promise. It's, it's the promise from which every other promise of the scripture flows. It is the gospel in, in bud form. And the rest of the Bible is simply the unfolding of that. And so it is that as you read on in the Bible, it begins to be unpacked and unpacked. But the whole scriptures are about Jesus Christ. That's their unity. That's their theme. How sinners are reconciled to God. This is the whole point of the Bible. And so we read about the patriarchs and Abraham telling Isaac that God himself would provide the lamb for a burnt offering. And we read the prophets, Isaiah saying, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And we read of these sacrifices of all kinds of animals and all this bloodshedding and and all these ceremonies and all these are foreshadowings and prophecies looking ahead. Read for the assurance of pardon this morning from Psalm 130. Israel waiting like a watchman on the city walls waiting for morning light. Israel was waiting when all these prophecies could find fulfillment. And at last, Hebrews 1, God who spoke in various ways, times past, who spoke to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. God sent his Son, finally the Son, come from heaven, the only one who could save. How do we know Jesus Christ is the only way? Because the Bible shouts that from beginning to end. This shows us all the failures of man's attempt from the Tower of Babel to whatever it is. Man's attempts to climb to heaven fail. But God at work to send one from heaven down to us to deliver. And every line of scripture is saying Jesus Christ is the way, the only way, and the sufficient way. The Holy Gospel revealed to us. Gospel means good news, and that's what the Bible is. It's a sad thing that so many of our neighbors think that the Bible is is the command what you must do. Well, it contains that. But the Bible is news. When you turn on the news at night, you're not waiting to hear what you should do. You're waiting for them to tell you what has happened. 
And that's what the Bible is. It's announcing what has happened, what God did for you, what he accomplished. It's not the imperative, first of all, go do something. It's the indicative, God did it. Salvation is out of our hands. It's of the Lord. It comes from above. God, the covenant Lord, took the initiative to return in love to a people who rebelled and to give us his son. And so the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If God was preparing all this through the Old Testament, if God went so far as to give his beloved, if the Son of God went so low as to bear our human nature and to bear our place on the cross, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Jesus Christ is the only way, but again, we say that not to boast in ourselves, not to boast about being right. We say because it's the truth. And we would that people would be saved. Hope the Lord gives you the strength to come tonight and to hear the revelation of Jesus in John chapter 4. What a, what a spectacular scene. Can't wait to preach it. That Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well, he persistently pursues her and pursues her in love to teach her the very lesson we're hearing this morning that he's the only way and he does it not because he wants to argue about something or show that he's right and she's not right. He does it. He presses to the very end to say to her, I am the Christ. I am the way. I am the living water. Drink and live. See, we're not in a battle for who's right for boasting's sake here. We're in a battle for salvation, for our own, for our neighbors. And it's our job as the Church of Jesus Christ to be crystal clear on this and to help that high percentage of those who call themselves Christians but are utterly confused on this that there is no other way to peace with God but through Jesus Christ. May Christ be our joy and our song and our delight. And we come with confidence, thanking God that the very Redeemer we need, he's provided. And as we read through things like these catechism questions and answers that may seem a bit scholastic and move logically here, may we understand that faith strains to know the depths of God's love and richer measure. Faith doesn't say, well, I already know something that Jesus is it. No, faith is saying, why is he the one? What did you do, God? Show me more of the wonders of your salvation. And that's to be the burning desire of God's people. Not to be minimalists who say, well, yeah, I know Jesus is the way. But those who want and hunger to know more of Christ, to be enthralled with him. And to say, Lord, show me some more. Let me see more deeply why Christ is the way. Why he's the only way. Why he's the perfect way. That I might be pleased also to tell the world that news. Amen. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we are often those who take this for granted. Open our eyes again to the splendor and the wonder that you have done the impossible through your own beloved Son. We thank you, God, that you didn't cast us off, but that you pursued us in wonderful love, and that you want us to know the riches and the depths, the heights and the glories of our Redeemer and what he's accomplished. Father, we pray against the ongoing work of Satan in this world. Our culture is full of the works of Satan as he confuses sinners, as he hardens them, as he leads them to think that there are many ways to you or that you don't exist at all. All the while, the world stands under the judgment of God. But God, as you've provided a way in Jesus Christ, may it be our delight as those who love our neighbors and who love that Christ be magnified in many hearts. You'll be pleased, Lord, to promote the cause of Jesus and to announce boldly and clearly that there is no way but the way you've provided. Glory be to you, O Lord. You have made salvation known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.